Matthew chapter 5. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that, more than this, comes from evil. All right, good morning. Good morning. I'm Tommy. This is our passage. I'm the pastor here, and here we go. Um, so this is not about necessarily uh, this sermon today. I, I set out to write a sermon about vows, and as I'm studying this and the ancient vows, I realized this is about a really a way bigger thing. So what was meant to be a small sermon about like vows and keeping your word has become this huge thing. So buckle up, it's going to go like way through history, and I didn't mean to, but here we are. Um, and so uh, this is not also about swearing. It's not saying OMG. It's not about that. Um, uh, this is about um, the world that, that you want to build. This is, the, this is about the kingdom of God. This is about um, the kind of people God's people are supposed to be. Um, and so you're going to have to try to stay with me. I'm going to go all the way back and sort of retell a little bit of the story of Israel and, and why this is important. So let's pray. And then we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna jump into this. Oh, real quick. Um, as far as the announcements go, that, that Sunday morning spiritual disciplines classes, um, those are going to be led by all, all kinds of people in the community that, that were picked to speak on different particular things. Now, all of the elders will be doing one of them. I'm not doing any of them. All the elders will be doing one, and then lots of other people are going to be teaching other ones. Um, so that's going to be great and fascinating and interesting. I wish I could go. I'll be here doing this. Um, Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this place, for these people. Um, I ask that you would help us right now as we gather together to be present, to be here, to be at peace, to to push aside the distractions, to... um, to not give weight to the things that, uh, that shouldn't have weight, that shouldn't be weighing us down. Um, I ask that you would speak to us, reveal to us something new, inspire us this morning, all of us. Um, each of us is going through some particular struggle or um, trying to figure out something or trying to find you in some situation. I ask that you would make it a little more clear today. Um, give us hope, but still cause us to have reliance upon you. As I speak, may I, uh, my head be clear, may I be focused, may I, be, uh, uh, may I remember the things I've studied and communicate clearly. Reveal to us um, things we haven't seen today. And uh, we are pausing in thankfulness of, of our life, our breath, the, the meals we've eaten this morning, the friends that we've joined together here the families that we have back home or with us today, uh, they're all a blessing. Remind us that uh, life is not some big test. Life is a gift, and let us live that way. Thank you. In your name, amen. Okay, so uh, Jesus starts off. He's, uh, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going through and listing all these different things that were laws that people had found uh, ways to basically do all the damage without breaking the law. So um, people weren't 
they, they were very religious people. They wouldn't murder people, but they would pretty much destroy them with hatred and bigotry um, and oppression. Um, people might not have been committing um, adultery, but they may as well have been because of the ways that they were looking at each other with lustful intent. And um, people may not have been... Um, um, People may have been sort of keeping sort of the laws, the ancient marriage laws, but in the same way they had turned marriage into this like oppressive thing that was brutal and abusive to people. So we've talked about all that. And today we come to vows. Um, and this one's interesting. Uh, so he, he, he points out this ancient scripture in Deuteronomy 23. Uh, so first off, Jesus says this. Again, you have heard that it was said uh, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Um, this is a quote and a reference to an ancient book, Deuteronomy 23. Remember last week, he talked a little bit about marriage and divorce, and he quoted Deuteronomy 24. Um, when you look at these passages, when someone quotes something in the ancient world, it's sort of like giving a scripture reference. Um, and you would think of the entire passage, uh, the entire chapter. So you would, you would think in your mind, so who referenced this? Well, that's in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and, and then you would sort of have this context because the ancient Jewish people knew their scrolls. They knew their Bible. Um, and they knew the context of these passages. So Deuteronomy 23 says this, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed, uh, what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So this is a law where it has to do with sort of um, interactions with each other, business decisions, because anytime a society is being built, um, all day we're sort of having these agreements with each other. When you receive a bill, there's sort of this agreement. They offered you a service and you're paying for it. Um, when you receive food, you're giving them money. So all throughout the day, uh, people are making these transactions. And the, and the idea here is, um, if you say you're going to do something, do it. It's a very simple idea. Um, be equitable to each other. The things you are responsible for, fulfill those responsibilities. The things you are obligated to do, fulfill those obligations. Now, very simple idea. So this passage is set in the context of this really big passage. I'm not going to read it, don't worry. Um, but it's set in context of this really big passage in Deuteronomy 23, uh, whose context uh, has to do with um, sort of a just society. When you build your society, this is how it should be. And so if I were to sort of outline this passage, it would look like this, verse 15 through 16. Uh, talks about runaway slaves. It says, let runaway slaves live freely among you. If, if a slave knocks on your door, they've run away from their master in some other city or whatever, um, and they show up at your door and they say, please give me shelter, let them in. Um, don't return them to their master because God wants people to be free. And then it says, let them live in your city wherever they decide to live. Uh, so uh, verse 17 and 18 ha uh, deal with um, Israel not having temple prostitutes like every other nation in the world did. Um, and here's how this worked. Um, in order for the temples to function like they do today, they rely on income to sort of pay for repairs, pay craftsmen and stuff to repair the temple. Um, also to pay sort of the priests so that they can buy food so that they can live. And so one of the ways that, like the main way, the ancient temples in the world would produce income is by hiring temple prostitutes who would live in the temple. And when people came to give their money, they would receive some sort of sexual favor of, of some type from these temple prostitutes, and this was the way that they would make money. Um, the Israelites, God says, when you build a temple, your tabernacle, your temple, um, we're not going to have any of that. This is going to be different. When people give their money, they're going to give it freely. 
because we're going to be a generous people. We're going to be a people who the first tenth of 10% of everything that comes up out of the ground is going to be called the first fruits, and we're going to bring it to the temple, and we're going to give it to the temple. It's going to be stored in a particular room that's going to be used to feed orphans and house widows and, um, and take care of people who are in need. So it's sort of this culture of generosity. We give because this is who we are. Not we give because we receive, and it makes it easier to give. Giving should be a sacrifice. It's part of the sacrifice that you bring. Um, And then verse 19 through 20, uh, you shall not charge each other interest. This was a big one. If you loan somebody money, they paid you back exactly what you loaned them because they were not going to be the kind of people that would get each other into debt, into slavery, because debt is slavery. Um, And debt in the ancient world literally was slavery. If you owed somebody money, you had to work for this person until you paid it back. And he says, and we don't do that. And so you're not going to charge each other any kind of interest. You're going to give to each other freely and repay each other freely. We're going to have integrity. Uh, And then we find our passage we're talking about in verse 21 to 23. It says, you will keep your vows to each other in your everyday business. When we're we're dealing with each other, we're going to be equitable. We're going to be fair. We're going to be honest. Uh, Verse 24 to 25, it says that um, basically if you're hungry, you can go into somebody's field and you can eat the food in their field. Any field at all. If you're walking down the road and there's an apple orchard or there's a grape orchard, I don't know, uh, field, who knows, vineyard, vineyard, there you go. You're going to walk into the vineyard and you're going to start eating some grapes. But there's particular rules. You can't put any grapes in your bag and you can't bring a tool with you to like cut down a branch with like 20 apples on it. All right. Um, you can only eat to fill yourself now. So basically anywhere you went in the city or in the countryside within this nation, you would be able to be fed. And the farmers would see people in their fields, and it's okay. Nobody's stealing. You're eating. And, and the farmer had his field, and he could go to someone else's field and eat their food. And the farmer could also um, hire people to work in the field and gather it up, and then they could use their tools, and then they could put them in bags. But, but there was sort of this understanding that, like, when someone's hungry, you just, just let them eat. None of it's really yours. It's all really all of ours. Um, so there's a particular society that they're building. Now, um, so this has to do with a, um, a society that is different than any other society in the world. It's a society with heart. It's a society with compassion and empathy, um, where people are treated equally, where, um, and originally this was designed not to have a king. Israel's not going to have a king because the Lord's going to be the king, and they're all going to live by sort of this um, theological ideal of grace and generosity. And it was a particular kind of, of nation that was going to be a blessing to the nations around them. They were going to be different, and, and the world would be better because they existed. Um, so when we read about the vows, you can see clearly that we're not talking about vows to God. We're not saying people wake up in the morning and say, God, um, if I get this job today, I'll go to church every Sunday for like 12 weeks. Uh, this is not us making a deal with God. Um, this is us making a deal with each other and using the name of God. Um, I, I swear by the name of God because of... Uh, the God that I worship, that I will do this thing. Um, so the vows that you were making, people would oftentimes call upon the name of God and everyone respected this name. Most people wouldn't even say this name. Um, and they would find some way to communicate this. Um, and they would, they would swear by God's name that they would keep their promise to you. So there's our context. So when we read... Um, So when we read today's passage, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Jesus is not talking about 
keeping our promises to each other, he's talking about the kind of world that the ancient people were supposed to live in, the, the, the thing that they were supposed to build. He's talking about the kind of people, the nation that they were supposed to be in the world that was set apart, unique, sanctified, different, um, that nobody else had. So, um, Jesus is speaking here. He, remember, the whole context of Jesus' passage is... Um, you shall have a righteousness that is higher than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees had a particular loophole. Uh, they were really good at finding loopholes. They were really good at like keeping the rules and breaking the rules, as I talked about. Um, and one of the things that they would do um, is they would, um, instead of saying, I swear to God, so this is, this is sort of like people today say, I swear to God or I swear on a stack of Bibles. Um, that's a descendant of the language of, of this. Um, and so one of the things the scribes and the Pharisees would do is they would make these promises to people. They would set up these business transactions and sign these documents and say, I swear that I'm going to do this. Well, who do you swear by? Well, I swear, I swear by heaven. They know that the law says if they swear by the name of God that they have to keep their promise. So instead, they would deceive people by swearing by heaven, by swearing by... Also, if you swear by your head, like, in other words, like, if I if I break the law um, off with my head, sort of like I swear my life, right? Um, then they had to keep it. So they would, they would see things like, I swear by my right hand. Um, I swear by heaven. And what they're doing when they say this is they're basically not using the name of God. Um, and they would say, I swear by the hair on my head, not my head, right? Because, oh no, you're going to cut my hair off. Goes back, um, and so they're finding ways to promise things and receive goods from people and take advantage of people. And then when payday comes, they don't have to pay them back because they're like, "Ah, I got you. I didn't swear by my head. I swore by my hair on my head, or I didn't swear by God. I swore by the temple, or I swore by, um, I swore by heavens, and that's where God dwells. But that's not God, so I don't actually have to pay you back. And that way, they could still go and enter into the temple and not have to repent and not feel any guilt and shame at all because. Basically, um, they had developed a thing into a religion and a bunch of rules that they had to follow where they could still just rip everyone off and take advantage of people but, uh, and, and sound a lot like God, godliness, but it wasn't. So, um, they're missing the entire point of all of this because the point of this was not um, when you vow, keep your vows if you swear by God. The point of this was um, we're going to build a, a society with heart and with grace and generosity and meaning and purpose. It's the kingdom of God, sort of representative on the earth. How things, as in heaven, so on the earth. Um, and these Pharisees and scribes had missed the entire point, and now they were using this idea to take advantage of people. So you with me? Now, um, this was really important because when Deuteronomy 23 was written, there was a, the, the particular discussion that they were having about what kind of society are we going to build, that was happening because they had not yet built a society. They didn't have a nation. They didn't have a land. They had just come out of slavery in Egypt. They had just been set free from this huge machine, this empire, which they had been enslaved to. Um, and now they find themselves wandering through the desert. They got chased by horses and chariots and they get through the desert and they get to Mount Sinai. And as the story goes, God hands them this law and says, we're going to do something different. And so here we are. Um, God sort of asked them, here's what I saved you from. What am I saving you to? What is this new thing that we're going to do? What is it going to look like? Um, how is it going to be governed? How is it going to look? Is it, is it going to be sort of this same old thing you see everywhere and that you've been enslaved by, or is it going to be something new? 
This was the big conversation that they had to have. Um, and so all of these laws were set up this way. So um, I want you to, so um, for generations, these, these people had been sort of born into slavery in Egypt. As the story goes, like we don't even know necessarily how this whole thing happened. As the story goes, we just, in the book of Exodus starts, there's the 12 tribes and they're all enslaved. Um, and I want you to imagine with me, if you will, that there's this little girl and, and she is, um, she's at her house and her father comes home and they're, they're Israelites and they're in bondage. And her father comes home and he's been all beat up and, and he's got like a black eye and a bloody nose and, and, his little, and he's, he's bandaging himself up and his little girl walks up and she says, Daddy, what happened to you? Uh, did somebody beat you? And he says, yes, the slave driver beat me. And she says, why did the slave driver beat you? And he says, well, um, I didn't make enough bricks. Well, Daddy, you've been making bricks your whole life and your dad made bricks before you and your grandfather made bricks for you. It's been going for generations. How could you not make enough bricks? He said, well, suddenly they're demanding more bricks and I couldn't make them because they also didn't give us enough straw to make these bricks. And so I didn't meet my quota. And so I got beat by the slave driver. And she says, well, didn't you tell the slave driver that um, you couldn't make enough bricks because you didn't have the straw? She goes, yes, but he had to beat me anyway. And she says, why? Why didn't he listen? Why didn't he have compassion? Well, because, because um, his, his boss is going to beat him. And because his boss is going to beat him. And because his boss is going to beat him. And this goes all the way up to Pharaoh. And it spreads out. And there's lots of people today that got beat because we couldn't meet our quotas. And so, and so it's, not really, it's not really this guy that beat me. It's the whole system that beat me. This whole system that, that we're a part of, that, that we're cogs in this big machine and, and we're enslaved by it and we can't get out of it. And, and that's the thing that caused this. And she says, well, daddy, she says, daddy, how did we get here? How did this happen? How did we get to this place where we're, like, we're all tangled up in this machine and everyone's afraid of, of, of not accomplishing and achieving because of the consequences that come from it because of these people at the top that are very powerful, but then they still have to keep this thing going. How did we get here? And so he has to tell this story and it starts way back with this guy named Abraham. And this guy named Abraham is living in one of these big cogs, this machine, and God calls him out. He says, you're going to start this new thing, this new nation. It's going to be a nation again that's going to bless every nation in the world. Um, he says, okay, and he's in. And he's, he starts doing this new thing. But within a couple of generations, his sons already start fighting over power, over birthrights, over land. Um, and... And, and, and Jacob steals the, the birthright from his brother Esau and there's this sort of battle that's waging already. And then Jacob has these sons and they sort of fall into the same thing and it gets worse because what they've seen in their father, they probably emulated. And then they have this son, Joseph, who's the youngest of 12 brothers and he seems to be like benefiting more from the family and have a little more power and a little more sway in the family. And he's got this beautiful, really fancy like outfit and coat and they hate him for it. And so they beat him up and they take the coat and they sell him into slavery um, and, but he climbs the ladder and becomes the king of Egypt. And then we have all these brothers and they go to Egypt and they all benefit from the system in Egypt. And they're all excited. And then suddenly we turn to the next book and they're all enslaved by it. This thing that they had taken advantage, that they, they had like benefited from um, and, and had a voice in, suddenly they're all enslaved by it. All their children are enslaved by it. And here we are. Now, today, if you ask any any, any Jewish person, what, what's the most important story in your scriptures? They're going to point to the Exodus. They're going to say, when, when we were brought out of slavery. The whole point of the Old Testament is people were not meant to live like this. People were not meant to be enslaved at all by other people and live in these systems like this. And, and, and God frees us from that 
Now, well, the interesting thing is God frees them from Egypt, and when, whenever he gives them a new law, he reminds them that he freed them from Egypt. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And he's always, so he gives them this new law, and he says, and you should listen to me because I brought you out of that. We're doing something different. Every time he mentions, I brought you out of that, he's basically saying, I'm not taking you back there again. And he's always reminding them, don't go back to Egypt. Don't become enslaved. Stay free. Do not get wrapped up in these things that the world gets wrapped up in. But the interesting thing is, like, we always go back. We always go back. If you fast forward just a little bit, you see this king, Solomon. Suddenly, Israel's got, Israel's got kings. They weren't supposed to have that. Um, and suddenly, they have kings. And then and you read this by King Solomon. It says, King Solomon had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. And he kept some of his horses and his chariots in his chariot cities, of course, because if you've got a lot, you've got to build some cities to house your chariots and your horses. And he kept others with him in Jerusalem. And Solomon got horses from Egypt, and they weighed about 15 pounds of silver for a chariot from Egypt. Wait, where's he getting these things? Egypt. What is happening? He literally, the horses and the, and, and the chariots that chased them as they fled slavery, he now has purchased and has built cities. And how did he build these cities? We read in 1 Kings, so Solomon rebuilt storage cities, the cities for his chariots, the cities for his cavalry, and whatever Solomon desired to build. Because if you're going to have a lot of opulence, if you're going to have a lot of buildings and treasures, you've got to have armies to protect these things. Um, and their descendants, these cities that he rebuilt, he says their descendants who were still left in the land, these Solomon constricted for slave labor, and so they are to this day. And so now Israel, God's people, called out to do something different, have become Egypt right down to slave labor and chariots and horses that they purchased from Egypt. They're modeling everything out of exactly what they were freed from. And so you can imagine somewhere in this kingdom, a little girl whose father is all beat up and he comes home. And she asks him, Daddy, what happened to you? And now he's telling the story of Israel, the Israelites who were enslaved them and now they're wrapped up in this thing. This is what we do. We go over and over and over again back to the place we were never meant to come. So when Jesus talks about vows, he's not just talking about when you make a promise, you've got to keep it. This passage was meant to be talked about in the context of society, of community, of the type of people we are supposed to be, of people who are holy and set apart, doing good for each other, equitable, honest, taking care of each other. This is why the early church like, were selling everything they had to take care of each other. It is supposed to be, like, we are supposed to be originally this, this people who is a light in the dark, who is a, a people who the whole world is blessed by because of our existence. And so when Jesus talks about this, he's not, he's not just talking about keeping promises. And so, again, let's start over. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord whatever you have sworn. Verse 34, but I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for, it's the footstool, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, um, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Any deception, any sort of taking advantage of other people, that's, it was never supposed to have any place in this community, in the community of God's people. Um, 
And so what Jesus is saying here, he's like, you can't, you can't swear by heaven. That's where God lives. You're going to swear by earth. That's his footstool. This is ancient cosmology of the throne on the top of the firmament and God's feet literally sitting on top of the dome. And um, he's like, no, this is the earth. This is where God rules. Um, and he says, oh, and you, you were created by God. You, have, you didn't create yourself. You can't even change the colors in your hair. Don't, don't swear by your hair. Don't swear by your head. Don't swear at all. There's no reason to. Why would you have to swear? If you're swearing that you're going to do something, it basically means that um, you don't have integrity from before and you've had to be the kind of people that are like, no, I promise this time. It means nobody trusts you. Why would they not trust you? Are you not God's people? Are you not the kind of people who are the just ones in society? And that's the question we're supposed to ask because we're not anymore. Um, but you see, the idea is that Babylon is built, Egypt is built, these enslaving cities are built one brick at a time. Unjust communities and societies are built one decision at a time. The things that enslave you in your life, the things that will weigh you down and say, I can't believe I ever got into this. It's one little bad decision after the next. Is that not how every like Netflix binge watching thing goes? <laughs> like, oh, he, don't do that. Don't say yes to that. Oh, really don't say yes to that. But I guess he has to because he said yes to the other thing. Well, now what's he going to do? And before the end of it, he's, he's leading this like Che Guevara style revolution through the jungle to do whatever. All because this guy was like, let me buy you a cigar. And he's like, okay. Like, you're like, don't, don't do that. Don't say yes to that guy. One little thing at a time builds this empire, this terrible thing. Um, so there's this way that the ancient Israelites would tell their story. There's this way that they would talk about their relationship with God that was totally different than anyone else in the world. Um, and it had to do with temple building. Um, so we're going we're gonna to veer off course and we're going to come back. And this is hopefully going to make sense in the end. Who knows? Um, so when the ancient temples were built every ancient temple that was built, they were built sort of all the same way because it was a special way that holy buildings were built. Um, it would be constructed, it would take a long time to construct, and it would be made out of, of stone usually, and they would build this huge empty space with a roof and everything, and the whole thing would be empty, but it'd be completed. Um, and then all of the furnishings for the temple, all the curtains, all the candles, all the statues, everything would be brought to the temple and, and laid out in front of it. And then for seven days, there would be this inauguration period where the temple would be inaugurated for seven days. You can read about King Solomon's inauguration in, uh, of the temple when he built his in, um, in uh, the book of um, Chronicles, First Chronicles. It's a seven-day inauguration period um, where the, the priest would basically, every single day for seven days, the furnishings would be brought into the temple and the place would be decorated, these massive, massive temples. For seven days, they'd be decorated and there'd be the high priest, sort of the, the director of the whole thing, the head of sort of the religion in the area would look at it, he'd say, yeah, that's, this is good, or this is not good enough, that needs to go back, we need a new statue, or this curtain, the, the color's all wrong, send it away, and bring me a new color curtain, darker, darker purple. Um, and, and they would furnish this thing for seven days, and the guy would be there saying, yes, that's good. Yes, that's good. Yes, that's good. Now, after this seven days is over, um, it was sort of believed that like the God would sort of enter the temple and rest in the temple. The people would throw this huge party and celebrate however they celebrated that God. Now, when the Israelites tell their story of creation, how does it go? Uh, seven days, each day. It starts off, first off, before the seven days, the spirit is there hovering over the face of the water. So there's this thing, there's this structure. And it says, but it's formless and it's void and it's empty. There's nothing there. Okay, now, 
Um, every day there's these furnishings brought and put in the temple. God says, let there be light, let there be plants, let there be animals, let there be fish in the sea, let there be stars in the sky every day. And at the end of every day, he says, God says, oh, it's good. It's good, it's really good, it's beautiful. It's good. And at the very end, you get to Genesis 2, and it says, it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. On the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. Um, and sort of there's this, story that is being told that mirrors the ancient stories of the, uh, the buildings of the temples and what, the basic, what basically um, anyone in the, in the ancient world is reading this text and they're hearing the Israelites tell their story of God creating the world. You know what they're saying? Wow. Wait a minute. Your, your God made the world as his temple to dwell here? To dwell with you here? Because I've never heard of that. The gods live out there. They don't live here. They're not present. The whole thing is, this is God's temple. And then you have even the, the building of the, of the if, you ever, if you ever actually study the building of the tabernacle in the desert, it's fascinating. It's, it's like this tiny, N.T. Wright writes a lot about this in his uh, new book, um, The Day the Revolution Began. He talks about how there's this, um, there's this sort of picture of the Garden of Eden in the, in the tabernacle. What's the ground made of? It, the ground's just dirt. They didn't put any floors in the, in the tabernacle because, of course, they're marching through the desert. And so the, the ground is all dirt. And then there's these wood, wood beams that are built for the walls and they're, they're decorated with like leaves and sort of carvings of trees. And then there's this one tree in the garden, in the tabernacle. It's the candle and it's shaped like a tree. And the tabernacle is the place where God and people are together. And so you have the little priests in there like, like little atoms walk, walking around and God's there present in the garden with the, so the, and, and the skies when you look at when you look at the, the, the curtains the ceilings of the tabernacle they're all they're all purple um, and sort of the general idea of all of this is um, oh first off I, I do have that Chronicles one it doesn't matter anymore but the idea the idea of, of the tabernacle was that like no it it mirrors the garden it mirrors creation the whole thing is a temple you are supposed to live in this world as if you are priests in the temple of God doing the work that God always intended for us to do. So when you look at the work that God has for like Adam and Eve, when you look at the work that God has for the priests in the temple and you look at your ideas, your work, the things you're supposed to do, it's all the same. It's all one thing. You're not just a waitress. You're a priestess in the temple of God. Here, what did the priest do? The priest connected people to God the priest was sort of this, um, this person who took care of reconciliation, who taught people like, here's, here's who God is. Here's how this works. We connect people. We are supposed to be the presence of God, the image of God in these people's lives. The ancient Israelites, when, when they talked about keeping their vows, you keep your vows because, of course, you're in the temple of God. And that somehow this thing had been perverted into, I can keep the vows and take advantage of people and steal from them at any point I want. Now, what do we have at the crucifixion of Jesus? You have this veil that's there that separates us from like the Holy of Holies where um, the Ark of the Covenant is. And at the crucifixion, what happens? The veil comes down and everyone can see. It like rips in half. And you can see, everyone can see and like there's, there's nothing in there. It's empty. Why? Because the whole thing is the temple. The whole thing. There's like this revelation that like, oh, there's not like one place where I go. There's not one sacred place and then all the rest is like secular spaces. It's all one sacred place. 
It's the whole thing is, is one thing. And then you have, you have the apostles who understood this. Um, Peter writes in, in Peter 2.5, he says, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Your job, you are a priest or a priestess in the temple of God in this world. It's all sacred. Every conversation that you have is, is you are the representation of God in that moment. There's no reason any Christian should ever, have to like, should ever take advantage of anybody. There's no reason we should be a part of these sort of systems of business that are predatory, that are not trustworthy. Um, it used to mean something when somebody would put that Christian symbol on their business. Now it's sort of looked at as like, oh, they're just trying to drum up more business and, and sort of false by your trust. But it, it shouldn't be like that. We're the priests in the temple. Um... And there's this one more thing because there's this, um, there's this word in, in the scriptures. The word is semnos. It's a word we translate as honorable. Paul uses it. He says, um, whatever is honorable, focus on these things. The word honorable is this word semnos. Everyone say semnos. Okay. This is a great word. This is an ancient word that people would use and sort of in slang, they would, they would throw this word like that, that person is sem- they're, they're such an honorable person. They are semnos. And the idea is it's one who behaves as if they were in a temple. So when you were a kid, were you ever like, you walk into like church and your parents are like, take your hat off. Why? You're in church. It's the house of God. Oh, sorry. And you take it off. Or like, like you say a word and you're like, oh, sorry, I'm in church. I can't say that word here. As if there's a spiritual place. And then like, once you're outside this place, you're fine. Say whatever you want. Right? Um, the idea of being semnos is somebody who's like, they're always in church. They're always looking around for someone who is in need of comfort someone who they can talk to about spiritual things. Um, like, what's going on? Can, can I pray with you? Is there something, can I, can I be an ear? Can I put my arm around you and walk with you and offer you encouragement? Now, this word is used all through scriptures as a way that we are supposed to be. We're supposed to move through the world, every interaction as if you are a representation of God and you're in the house of God, you're in the temple of God. And, and it is your responsibility here to say, to, to connect this person however they need to be connected with God. You're going to tell all the stories of reconciliation and redemption. Um, and so you have these passages in scriptures like 1 Peter 2.17. It says, honor all people. Uh, love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Um, when you're in their presence, you have a job to do. At every moment, you have a job to do because the whole thing is a temple. There is no such thing as secular. There is no business deal which God is not a present and a part of. There is no interaction which is not supposed to be sacred and holy. Um, Romans twelve ten. be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Give preference to one another. Is, does the priest in the temple, is he, is he there for himself? Is he working out, like, is he working to sort of um, take care of himself? And his, no, he's, his job is to be there to take care of everyone else. And anything he does for himself, the priest, um, when he, whether he eats or whether he does his own sacrifices on his own, he does all that so he can have himself have all of his stuff together because he has to take care of everyone else's stuff. So this is why, um, this is why you take care of yourself. This is why you practice the spiritual disciplines. This is why you spend time in confession because you should be healthy because your job is, is to bring other people to health and you can't do that unless you yourself are being healthy. You can't um, help people reconcile if, if you yourself aren't acting in reconciliation. You can't... Um, help people have healthy relationships if you are working really hard for your own image and editing that in everybody else's eyes, running around making sure everyone sees you as this particular kind of person. Um, that's not helpful. 
Your job is to be sort of this humble servant lifting up everyone else around you. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. There's nothing that you should be doing to lift yourself up in the eyes of others. You are here to connect others and lift them up. And so this message that Jesus has for these, for these Pharisees is an utter rebuke of the entire way that they move through the world and that they view the world. They look like people of God, but they are not. We recognize this regularly. Why? Because we are Christians. Um, but the world doesn't recognize this the way we do. We are paired up with these people who speak things that sound a lot like Christianity, but they're not. That's what's happening here. They're saying things, I swear by the heavens. That sounds an awful lot like, like promising to God, making a vow to God that you're going to do this thing equitably. Um, but it turns out you're not. You're using God talk and religion to give yourself power and money and, and fame and whatever. But if you understand, it's not just that saying that's wrong. If you understand that, like what you are actually doing here, the society that we are here to build, um, the, the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because this is the place where God is. This is the temple. It's not this room. It's this whole thing. And we should be people who are honorable, who move through the world as if the whole thing is this temple and we are the priests and we're wearing the vestments and people should see that. So I don't, I don't know what this means for you. I never know what people are um, dealing with. I, I imagine there's some of you trying to make a decision right now whether or not you should do this particular thing or not because maybe it's a little shady. Maybe it's less loving than, than you would like to be. Maybe you're worried that it's going to be part of something that like, you don't really want to be a part of but you don't see another way. There's always another way. And in fact, that is the wrong way. That will lead you to being stuck in this thing that is going to be very difficult to climb out of. That will be detrimental to you, to your spiritual life, to your soul. Don't be a part of it. We are called out of that. We are called to be separate. We are called to be priests and priestesses in the temple. The whole thing. Um, and in fact... Uh, so let's move towards communion. Why don't our communion servers go ahead and take the elements and spread around? This is the picture of communion. I talk about this a lot. Finding Christ in the common, communion. It's part of the word. It's just bread. It's just wine. But it's something bigger. It's more. And in fact, every moment of your day, there's these common things that you're interacting with. It's just a business deal. You're just selling a car. You're just serving someone a plate of food. You're just cooking something. You're just fixing an engine. Um, no, you're not. This is, that's no less spiritual than the bread and the wine is. That's all this is. You're not just serving someone a plate of food. You are a priest in the house of God, this, and you should be able to find Jesus in this. You are serving someone food. They need this to live. They may not need that particular food. I'll admit that. But um, you are interacting with these people and feeding them. You're fixing someone's car so that they can... They can be free to move through the world and do something good. They may accomplish something beautiful, and this is your work. And, and there should be this thing where you find meaning in all of it. Find Christ in the common. My favorite, my favorite example of this is always Brother Lawrence um, in the monastery hundreds, 500 years ago, peeling potatoes every day and talking about God while he peels potatoes. And it was such a riveting thing to watch this man with the, with the love and care with which he peeled Mountains of potatoes that people would come from the countryside and sit with him as he peeled these potatoes and he would listen to them and he would just offer small little bits of just sacred conversation. 
because he understands what he's here for. He understands that the kingdom of God, just like Babylon, the kingdom of God is also built one brick at a time, one interaction at a time. It's every moment pouring yourself out in that moment, whatever that looks like. Just the smallest things turn into these huge things. And so we're going to take time and we're going to take communion. And I want you to just sort of feel the weight of like, this is just bread. This is just, it's just not even wine. It's like Welch's grape juice. And you're going to look at it and you're like, no, like, you know what it represents right now though? It's the body of Christ broken. And it's, it's the blood of Christ poured out for me so I could find healing. And so let's pray and let's take some communion and let's find some meaning in it. Think about it, meditate on that this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. As we move into communion, remind us of why we're here. Life, again, you did not put, put us here as some big test. Life is not a test from God. Life is a gift. Let that be our, the, the sort of the center of our motivations. That like, this is all a gift. We are here to do your work, to bring about your kingdom. May those who are, are terrified of failing at whatever they're going into realize that this is, it doesn't matter. This is not a test, it's a gift. Let those who are um, just worn down raising their children be reminded that this is not a test, it's a gift. Let those who are every day wondering if the work that they're doing has any purpose at all, let them see, they're like, no, that is not the work they're here to do. They are here to do the work of the priests in the temple. That's just a means by which they can do the work of the temple. Let us learn to see you. Let's see Christ in the common. Let, let, Let this little spiritual practice of communion be this thing that gets under our skin and becomes the way that we spend our time. Change us please. In your name, amen. Take some time, take communion.